and welcome back to the Presto podcast. Our guest this week is Robert Levin, who I first came across in the form of a name written on the score of Mozart's great Mass in C minor, which I was singing many years ago, which he'd completed, uh, about which more later. So to be actually talking to somebody like this in real life feels a little bit like bringing up one of the gospel writers for a little chat. Robert is an extremely distinguished Mozartologist, which is definitely a real word, both from the sort of scholarly perspective, the academia, and also as, of course, a pianist and forte pianist and general keyboardist, combining those two sides of music to a degree that you don't often get to such a high standard. Robert, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you have quite a significant album coming out in March. It's the first-ish volume in the much-delayed home straight of your complete cycle of Mozart's works for keyboard and orchestra. This has been going um, 30 years, started in 1993, when I was quite small. How did it get off the ground? Was was this sort of an idea that was floating around in, in the ether generally, people talking about doing this kind of thing a, a lot, or did it come kind of out of nowhere? Well, certainly the cycle that I embarked upon with Christopher Hogwood and the Academy of Ancient Music was not the first traversal of the canonical Mozart concerto. So Malcolm Bilson had done that with the English Baroque soloists and Sir John Elliott Gardner. And Jos von Immerzell with his chamber orchestra Anima Eterna had done uh, a, a cycle for uh, channel classics, um, although they were not as complete as what we're going to be doing here. Um, but the the way that our project got off the ground goes back to oh around 1990, and uh, I got a call from a television producer named Jeremy Marr, who was working on a series for Channel Four on improvisation in different cultures. And he told me that he was doing quite well with most parts of the world. But the domain of Western classical music uh, was rather slim. Obviously, there were organists who uh, perforce need to be able to improvise at will. And there's a great tradition of that, particularly in France. Um, but he said he was, he was coming up rather short with, with classical music in general. And he was told by somebody that I might have an idea that, that could be useful. And I said, yeah, I do have an idea about that. He said, well, what would you do? I said, well, we could take a movement of a Mozart piano concerto and have uh, uh, the movement played. And then when it gets to the point where the cadenza has to be played, I'll make one up just like that. And then we'll back up and the orchestra will do the, the play-in to the cadenza again, you know, just 20 seconds or so or 30 seconds. And then I'll do another one and then another one. And then people will begin to realize, wow. You know, this is this is really different. These are not just stock formulations, but uh, actually a, a kind of um, involvement in uh, the details of the narrative and uh, offering a different perspective on it. And he said, well, that sounds like something I think I'd like to do. So we need to get a band, don't we? I said, yes, you do. He said, well, whom should we get? I said, why don't you get the Academy of Ancient Music and Christopher Hogwood, who, of course, were already uh, quite celebrated. They had done the Mozart uh, symphony cycle for, for one thing. And uh, so I'm very proud to say that the initial relationship that uh, I had with the Academy of Ancient Music and Chris Hogwood came about at my instigation and not anybody else's. And you can go on to YouTube and see the uh, the program and, and, and Chris and I talking and, and so on. And he uh, came out of that thinking, well, this could be interesting. And so he contacted Decca and said, I've got this chap who, who can improvise cadenzas and maybe we should do a disc of Mozart concertos. And in those days, of course, the record labels were flush. And Decker came back and said, no, no, we don't, we don't want to do a disc. We want to do the whole lot. 
And so in 1993, we embarked on the, the, the cycle and uh, it went along until the year 2000, by which time we had recorded eight of the projected 13 CDs when uh, DECA decided that it was not in a position to continue the series. And so they stopped it in 2000 and then 20 odd years went by and it was morning, noon and night. And then uh, what happened was the, the strange agent of, of uh, rescue was COVID-19 because the, you know, the, the orchestras were not able to give concerts because public concerts were out in the pandemic period. And so the question was, how can they endure? How can they survive? And the idea is, well, why don't we uh, pick up this Mozart project? Uh, we'll need to raise a fair amount of money. A quarter of a million pounds had to be raised in order to, to, to do all of this. And uh, we had a few false starts. We set some some times to do recordings, and then uh, COVID didn't uh, uh, cooperate, and so we had to delay things a little bit. And so it ended up that the first of the sessions was in August of, of 2021, and we had six sessions in all. And by August of 2022, we had recorded all of the material of the uh, five discs that had been pending. And the first of these uh, discs with the C major concerto, Kerfo 467, and the C minor concerto, K491, uh, are uh, being released just about as we speak. So just to refresh our memories and our listeners' memories, let's have a little something from that very first disc from 1993. Uh, this is the opening movement of the Genome Concerto K271 with the Academy of Ancient Music, Christopher Hogwood and Robert Levin at the Forte Piano. The identity of the young pianist for which this concerto was written was shrouded in mystery for a long time. Uh, two French musicologists, Georges de Saint-Foy and Théodore de Vizeva, in their five-volume survey of Mozart's biography and music, created the name Mademoiselle Jeunhomme, uh, Miss Young Man, you know, which turned out to be rubbish. Uh, the indefatigable uh, scholar Michel Lawrence in Vienna uh, discovered her identity, uh, that she was, in fact, the daughter of the French ballet master Jean-Georges Nover, who was a friend of the Mozart family. And Mozart wrote this piece for her and refers to her as Genomie. And uh, Mozart's father calls her Genomai. Um, but she's a real person, and we know of her existence. And uh, Michel Lorenz found the marriage contract and the divorce papers and everything else that you could possibly need. So... These days we call it the Genami Concerto and not the Genome Concerto. So as you mentioned, the project had a, I think it's fair to say, a little bit of a hiatus um, about the early early 2000s, just, just before. Um, and you, like you said, it was dropped um, partway through. What, what went wrong? Was it just just a money problem or, or what, what was... I think, it was, I think it was just economics pure, mm. you know. 
Um, there was a time when, in the in the 1980s in particular, where uh, there was a huge output of these things. And, uh, Chris Hogwood and the Academy were doing a, a complete Haydn symphony cycle too. Um, it was a, an optimistic time, and then sales dropped off. There was, you know, all of this streaming stuff that you could do. You could get uh, classical uh, repertoire free of charge uh, on on the web. And the, the economics of things started to become more powerless. It was not because of any enthusiasm uh, about the discs themselves, which were universally reviewed with, with uh, accolades. So uh, it was a heartbreaking moment, of course, for all of us. And we kept on hoping that maybe the whole thing would, would happen again. By the time it did, of course, our dear Christopher Hogwood had uh, gone on to a, uh, another uh, place. And he, he left us in, in uh, 2014. So... By the time we did decide to redo the cycle, it was Richard Egar, um, who had succeeded Christopher Hogwood as the director of the Academy of Ancient Music, uh, who uh, did uh, two of the five discs with me. So here then, just as a sort of historical note, I suppose, is the slow movement of the concerto number five in D major, K175, which is from what at the time looked like it might be the last volume in the whole series. And I, I can't imagine what people didn't like when listening to this, but here it is. So with your musicologist's hat on, you've obviously completed various works that Mozart carelessly left unfinished. Uh, the, the Mass in C minor that I, I was singing years and years ago, uh, piano trios, and of course there's Requiem, which has got all that mythology of the, the shadowy dark figure and all that stuff around it. What is that process actually like for you? I've always wondered, is it like you're digging up things like an archaeologist or are you more like feeling like a creator composing something new? I almost want to say pastiche, but I guess you, you might not like that term. What, what's that feel like when you're doing it? Well, it's a bit of all of those things mm. because um, what one needs to do, first of all, is to examine all of the source material that has come down to us to see um, how... Uh, some surviving little snippet of paper with some chicken scratching on it uh, might bear some relationship with the task at hand. So we do have uh, Mozart's manuscript to the Requiem, and we do have his assistant Susmar's completion. Uh, those have come down to us. Um, but in as late as the 1960s, a sketch leaf turned up in Berlin which clearly had music designed for the Requiem on it. And one of the, the things that it contained was a sketch for a fugue on the text Amen, which was clearly designed to end the Lacrimosa. Uh, Susmeyer, Mozart's assistant, was not a good contrapuntist. 
And he took a look at this and decided he would rather just have two chords, ah, men, you know, uh, and, and end things off in a simple sort of way. So once you have exhausted all of the source situation that you can, then the question is, of course, you have to dip your pen into the into the inkwell and then decide what you're going to do. And obviously, there, there are many ways in which you can fail at this task and not very many in which you can succeed. It's easy to fail because you lack the competence to, to rise to the challenge that you don't know enough about the intricacies of Mozart's style, the vocabulary of rhythms and of chords and of melody uh, that are characteristic of him, but not only him in general, but him given the piece at hand, because the kind of music that he was writing at that time for La Clemenza di Tito is not the kind of music that he was writing for the Requiem. The ecclesiastical style is a very different thing from an opera seria. So you have to really be aware of the dialects that Mozart uses and how his language within all of those multifarious dialects uh, evolves uh, in time from the time he's five, when we have his first surviving comp compositions, uh, to age 35. Uh, and one becomes very aware of the fact that these fragments, which, by the way, are of a greater number than any other major composer in music history. There are over 140 musical torsos uh, by Mozart that have survived. And most of them are not dry runs where he says, oh, this isn't getting anywhere. What rubbish? I forget about it. But actually pieces which are at times more interesting than some of the completed ones, leaving us uh, to shrug our shoulders and wonder why he would finish a, a, a piece uh, or why he wouldn't. And Alan Tyson uh, the British musicologist who uh, did a census of all of the paper types that Mozart used, which has been an extraordinarily useful dating tool forensically, because if you have eight pieces which are written on a particular type of paper and five of them are dated, you can assume, like postage stamps, that you buy the postage stamps and use them up before you buy more of them. So uh, if he have, has dated these pieces, then those which are undated probably come from around that same time, which has redated some of Mozart's pieces by as much as 10 years, which is rather enormous. So, you know, you have all of these factors that, that go into your work. And in the end, there's a combination of creativity with uh, some restraint, uh, trying to uh, avoid just driving off the road by, uh, you know, uh, exuberance, which is misplaced. So in, in the end, the, the result, of course, is going to be judgeable by anybody because we all know Mozart's music very well and we know when it sounds right and when it doesn't sound right. And so it's not an actually very comfortable position to find oneself in. It's very interesting you say about Mozart being sort of the one who's left us the most. I kind of assumed it would be Bach with all those cantata fragments, but it's, there must just be a lot more out there. Well, there aren't so many cantata fragments compared with Mozart, not, not many, but we have fragments of operas, we have fragments of symphonies, we have fragments of, of concertos and, and, and quartets and quintets and just about every genre. And some of the pieces are really spectacular. I mean, one of them has found its way uh, into our uh, cycle, the uh, double concerto movement for piano, violin and orchestra, which Mozart wrote for the concertmaster for the leader of the Mannheim Orchestra uh, in 1778. And the third edition of the Kirchhoff catalog, which does not in general contain value judgment, says it's one of the greatest losses in art that Mozart didn't finish this piece. So uh, I think some people may enjoy hearing this completion, which gives us a sense of 
judging our laws. So let's hear uh, now some of the, the fruits of your work, the, the exact movement that you mentioned, the, um, the lacrimosa from the, the Requiem. Um, of course, Mozart only gave us, I think, eight bars of this. Um, so A little bit, yeah, just about eight bars. Yeah, some, right. Something like that. Um, so here's, here's the conclusion of your, your own completion of that movement. You're not actually the only Mozart completer in town. Um, no. Uh, as a couple of years ago, uh, I came across, it's Timothy Jones had done some completions of things for violin and piano, which um, were recorded by Rachel Podger and Christopher Glynn. Um, I, I don't want to sort of set a, the cat among the pigeons and start some kind of feud here, as academics perhaps sometimes do. What did you think of them? Is he a sort of deadly rival? If you if you meet at a conference, do you sort of, you know, stare daggers at each other or is it not really like that? Oh, not at all. Not at all. You know, when we had a conference about the Mozart C minor mass, Philip Wilby came uh, and he had done a version of it too that's published by Novello. And we got along just just fine. You know, it's fun to have a dialogue with people like that because they're aware of, of the, the criteria. They're aware of the challenges. And it underlines the fact that any attempt at completion is purely speculative. And he actually, to his credit, not only implies this, but states it because the disc that you mentioned contains, uh, in certain cases, two different completions that he's done for the same fragment, uh, which is a very courageous and, and uh, very stimulating sort of, sort of thing to do. I mean, I can listen to something that he does and says, well, I might do it differently. But he has a very fine grasp of the Mozartian style. It's, it's very fluent what he does. And, and even if, if I may have a few doubts about a passage here or there, I'm sure he might have the same kinds of doubts about what I've done. And so, uh, far from, from feuding or, or, uh, you know, having a, a situation that's adversarial, I would uh, enjoy sitting down with a pint and talking to him about, well, what did you do? Why did you do what you did here? And so on which is what I did with Duncan Druce with his version of the Requiem when we met up in Maida Vale at one point and had a sandwich together and he put his score in front of me and I put mine in front of his and we said, oh, wow, look at that. Oh, that's really quite interesting. Gosh, wish I had done that. Well, oh, yeah, wow, so good. So just in the interests of, um, you know, total even-handedness, uh, here are two completions of Mozart's uh, Fantasia Number no. 2 in C minor, K396. First, Timothy Jones's, and then your very own.
So coming back to the concertos and sort of more from the performer's point of view, I suppose, than the academics, I guess it's true to say that our thinking on historical performance and authenticity and all that has evolved somewhat over the last, uh, what, three decades, actually, isn't it? Is there anything from those earlier releases that you now look back on and think, oh, I might do this differently, I might do that differently? Well, I'm a champion of the volatility of, of musical performance. And one of the central aspects of uh, the performances that I uh, do of classical period music is that I do a lot of improvisation. And so uh, even where Mozart, for instance, wrote, wrote his own and left his own cadenzas to his concertos, I've taken the point of view that we know that he improvised these cadenzas and that the written out ones were for his pupils and for his sister. And so from that point of view, there's no need to record the Mozart cadenzas for umpteenth time. We did, by the way, record them so that in some future technological situation, it might be possible to dial up a cadenza, you know, or have a random cadenza generator, which could, could be kind of fun. That for, for once, the audience listening wouldn't be sure which of the alternatives they, they might get. Um, but the, the whole point of this spontaneity is that any particular recording is a snapshot. And so would I do things differently? Yes, but not out of repudiation for what I did before, but just because, well, that was, you know, April of, of 1995. And, and here we are, you know, in, in uh, um, March of 2023. And so the cadenza is going to be different because I had something different for lunch. Now, obviously, although you do and have done an enormous amount of work on Mozart, it's not all about Mozart. There's You've got recordings of Beethoven's Bach. I think I saw some Dutier, um, yes, you just did. for a bit of variety. Um, but it does still, this does all beg the question, what happens next? Once this series is done and dusted, are you going to have a big Mozart-shaped hole in your life? What, what, what do you think comes next? Well, I'm not going to stop performing these pieces simply because I've recorded them. You know, the, the disc that's coming out, as I said right now, includes the C minor concerto K491, which I performed twice in Prague and in Salzburg just last month. And I'm about to perform five times in Israel, which is fun because when you get, when you go on a, on a tour like that, then, uh, the orchestra is going to hear me improvise different cadenzas, obviously, in each of the performances. So it keeps things quite, quite lively and, and risky, which I think is, uh, a, a critical criterion if classical music is to endure. The idea that, that everything is practiced and polished and, and, you know, uh, Dewar's white label scotch, it never varies. You know, well, maybe that's good for Dewar's white label scotch, but I think for musical performance, it's not so good. And uh, so I'm not going to stop my engagement uh, with this repertoire just because of the fact that we have uh, now finished the, the cycle. Uh, but I do have other I interests, and uh, uh, I'm hoping in within a certain amount of time that I'll be recording the Bach-Oldberg variations, uh, for, for instance, and some piano trios. I did the complete Schubert piano trios with the leader of the Berlin Philharmonic, Noah bendix Volgli, and the distinguished cellist Peter Wiley. And uh, we're looking at a, a continuing our relationship there with, with some recordings. So uh, it's not going to be boring. Mm. Yeah, that all sounds... Uh... That all sounds very fruitful. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Robert. This has been an absolutely fascinating talk. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you.
So just to remind listeners, the first of these five albums that completes the set is coming out on March the 3rd, which as we record is tomorrow, and the rest are being released over the following months, with the cycle reaching its final conclusion to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the Academy of Ancient Music itself in June of next year. Uh, let's close with a blast from the past. Here's Neville Mariner with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields to play us out with the end of Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante in E-flat, K297B, reconstructed by, of course, Robert Levin. <laughs> 